Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We turn to the Word of God tonight. And I would invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. As we prepare to come before the table of the Lord, we look to his word. And if you've been with us on Sunday evenings, you know that we've been working through this letter to the church at Colossae. And tonight, we're continuing on in the argument that uh, Paul has been making, a, a theological argument that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are united to Christ by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit with us, and that this union with Jesus Christ through faith is the central fact of our salvation. Last week, if you were with us, you know that we saw that if, if you've been united to or, or joined to or hidden in Christ, that means that what is true of Him becomes true of us. He died And so we died to our old self that followed the desires of the flesh and the pattern of this world. He has been raised, and we have been raised with him to new life by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in us. And so now our focus, our desire, our hope is to be with Christ in heaven, not here on earth since we have died and been raised with him. That was the the theological uh, foundation that Paul laid last week, and tonight we're going to turn to consider what this death and resurrection in Christ, with Christ, means for how we live. So if you have your Bibles open, we want to read tonight verses 5 through 11. Read with me from God's Word. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Father, and we thank you for your word, and we ask that your spirit would work in us through your word to make us more like Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. This author, Drew Dyke, wrote about attending a Christian youth conference a number of years ago. He summed up the message from the speaker at that youth conference this way. Being a Christian isn't hard. You won't lose your friends you won't be unpopular at school. Nothing will change at all. Your life will really be the same, just better. Now, Drew was horrified when he heard that message from that speaker, 
And he looked around to see if the teenagers were horrified, but he said they weren't horrified at all. In fact, they weren't even listening. They were flicking Doritos at each other. But he concluded, and why should they pay attention? Who cares about something that involves no risk, no sacrifice, and changes nothing at all? Now, I don't know who the speaker was at that conference, but if I did, I would like to ask them to read, among other things, Colossians chapter 3, where Paul argues that coming to Christ changes things quite dramatically. In fact, I first read about Drew's experience from another teenager named Jaquel. At age 19, Jaquel wrote this, When God saved me, my life would never be the same. Once lost, now I'm found. Once a slave to sin, now I'm a child of God. Once living for the world, now I live for a better eternal kingdom. Everything about my old loss, life has lost its charm. Make no mistake, Jesus changes everything. Now that's more like what we read in Colossians chapter 3. Specifically, as we come to Colossians 3, Paul argues that if you have been united to Christ, you cannot live the way you used to live. Paul uses changing clothes imagery in this passage. And you know what that is like when you change circumstances, when something changes, you need to to change your outfit. You recently went to the gym and worked out, and then I came home and was going on a date with my wife. And in order to make that happen uh, kindly and to her, I needed to put off one outfit and put on another one and shower in between. Cry, uh, Paul argues that this image of putting off one set of clothes and putting on a new set of clothes applies to our lives. Because we died with Christ and were raised with Christ, we are to put off the old outfit, the old man with its practices, and we are to put on the new self with its practices. Now, everything that Paul says here is resting on the theological foundation of our union with Christ that we talked about last week. So, we have to make sure we keep verses 1 through 4 in mind as we look at these verses, but I want to break this passage into to two parts. First, verses 5 through 9, where Paul focuses on putting off our old man, and then we'll look briefly at verses 10 and 11, where he talks about putting on the new self. But let's start in verses 5 through 9, where Paul talks about putting off our old man. In these verses, I want us to see both Paul's theological reasoning and his practical exhortation. There's a theological reasoning and a practical exhortation. Paul's theological reasoning is based on a particular understanding of our lives. And in Paul's theology, there is a certain identity or commitment at the core of who we are in our hearts. And then there are practices or ways that we live that flow from our heart or our core identity. It's really the same thing that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 when he says that the actions in a person's life reflect the commitment of their heart. The root of who we are, whether in Christ or in the flesh, will lead to fruit of how we live, whether living out of our union with Christ or living out of our fleshliness. 
And Paul has already argued that when we turn to Christ in faith, that core identity, who we are at the very core of ourselves, our very self, changes. A death happens and a new creation happens. A heart of stone is removed and a heart of flesh or a a living heart is put in. And that change in who we are ought to lead to a change in how we live. If you read down through verses 5 through 9, you can see Paul's logic unfold. He begins in verse 5 by urging the Colossians to put to death what is earthly in them. As he lists some of those behaviors, which we'll talk about in a minute, he then acknowledges in verse 7 that they once walked in all of these sinful ways, but they did that when they were living in them. And if you look at verse 7 for a second there, note that to walk in sinful ways and to live in sin is not redundant. The two two halves of verse 7 there are not just repeating the same thing. Rather, it's referring again to root and fruit. Their identity, the core of their life, was rooted in this world, in sin, among the sons of disobedience. They were living in sin, and therefore they walked in or practiced the sins or the deeds of the flesh. They practiced those things because they were living in them, or as uh, may say, living in uh, the world among the sons of disobedience. There's some question about uh, the text there. But either way, the point is clear. Paul is saying, but now you must put them all away. Why? Verse 9, because you have put off the old self with its practices. In other words, when the core of who you are changes, you should put off the practices that belong to the old man. It's really straightforward logic. If you leave one company and begin working for a competitor, you stop doing the things that helped your former company and you start living in ways that help your new company. Or I think of Hudson Taylor when he went to China and began China Inland Mission. He argued that he wasn't in England anymore. And see, he wasn't going to live like the English. He was in China. And so he began to dress like the Chinese. He grew his hair out so he could braid it like the Chinese. He began to eat what the Chinese ate. See, a change in where he was leads to a change in the practices or the way you live. And that is what Paul's saying here. All the practices, the sinful actions and responses of the old man need to be put away because that old man died with Christ. That's the theological reasoning that Paul puts uh, in place here. But that theological reasoning leads to a practical exhortation. Because the death of our old man does not automatically and completely eradicate the behavior of our old man on its own. It doesn't happen like that as if by magic. Even though we are new creations in Christ and even though our old man was crucified with Christ and even though death no longer reigns over us, the old sinful desires and earthly instincts are not completely dead. In fact, 
they often seem quite eager to make it clear that they're still alive and kicking. At least if your experience is anything like mine. After all, we are told that the world, the flesh, and the devil are still at war with the Spirit in us. Paul makes this clear in the book of Galatians. There's a battle, uh, a, a war going on in, within us between the Spirit and the flesh. And not only that, but the trained patterns of our old man remain in our bodies and minds even after we become new creations. And so there will be work necessary to live out what has happened to us in Christ. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones famously used an analogy for what this is like. He said, suppose that you grew up in the 1800s in the state of Alabama as a slave on a plantation. On December 18, 1865, the Secretary of State of the United States, if you know your timeline, December 18th is after the end of the Civil War. So the Civil War has ended. December 18, 1865, Secretary of State William Seward officially declared the end of the institution of slavery in the United States of America. Then, officially and definitively, legally and reality, you are not a slave anymore. You are free. But you've spent your whole life as a slave. You've grown up as a slave. Does that mean that you and everyone around you is immediately going to act as if you are a free person? And the answer is no. Your former master may continue to treat you like a slave and try to exert his influence over you. You yourself may feel inclined to continue to behave like a slave and to act like you have for your entire life. And so it will take a proactive, determined effort to remind yourself and to tell your former master, no, I am not a slave anymore. I am going to refuse to live the way I used to live. And I am instead going to live according to my new identity as a free person. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that is a little bit what it's like for us as a Christian. When we are united to Christ and our old man has died and we are united with Christ in his resurrection and yet the world, the flesh, and the devil will still battle for us and seek to exert their temptation and influence over us. And we ourselves will need to make this exerted effort. And so that's Paul's exhortation to us. Theological reasoning, your old man died. Practical exhortation, so now you must put to death anything in you that still smacks of this earth. Our union with Christ ought to lead to an active and determined effort to kill any old man practices that still remain. But you notice, Paul takes this seriously. Paul doesn't just say, all right, Christian, you should stop sinning now because it's inconsistent with who you are. No, he puts it much more strongly than that. You see verse 6? He tells us, put to death what is earthly in you. Why? Verse 6, because on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now the point is not that a Christian can never sin again or he's lost. The point is, it is very possible for us 
to at some point in our life say, sure, I will believe in Jesus. Maybe we, maybe we keep coming to church. Maybe we've signed a decision card. But if we continue to make sin the choice, the pattern, the practice of our lives, if sin continues to be the thing that defines us, we need to hear Paul's warning, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It's really the same exact point that the author of Hebrews makes in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, after encouraging us to come to come to Christ, to come into the veil through the way that Christ has provided, the author of Hebrews warns us. Chapter 10, verse 26, but if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And you see, throughout the pages of the New Testament, Grace and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ are well attested. But across the pages of the New Testament, Scripture leaves zero room for a casual, free grace approach in which sin is not that big of a deal in the life of a Christian. Far from it, Paul says. If you are in Christ, you must put away the practices of your old man. Now, in case there's any confusion in Paul's readers as to what these practices of the old man might be, he lists a number of them. And this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list, but it is uh, an example. It is a a, a sample of these old man practices. You see in verse 5, he lists sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Sexual immorality, of course, refers to any sexual activity apart from marriage between a husband and a wife. I think it's helpful for us to realize that the Bible doesn't chop all sorts of categories up the way our 21st century Western mindset may. The Bible has two categories. The Bible has holy sexuality between a man and a woman in marriage and then everything else which is sexual immorality. And we could take that, and the Bible gives us a number of examples of that sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, and sex outside of marriage. There are different examples, but sexual immorality is the blanket that covers all sexual sin outside a man and a woman within marriage. That's the category the Bible gives us. Impurity refers to anything that is unclean, unholy, or perverted from the limits and directions that God gives us and establishes in his word. That could include anything from innuendos that are perverted from what God has given us to sick perversions of what God made holy and good. Paul then adds passion and evil desire, and these words are particularly important for us in the 21st century. In the, in the conversation that happens around us in the church. Because this is a great example of how Scripture makes it clear that desiring and longing for something sinful is sin. In the same way that practicing sin is sin. Just as Jesus says adultery is sin and lusting after another man's wife is sin. The desire for adultery is sin as is the action. And Paul is saying, our passion, 
our desire towards something evil is sinful as well as the act. This is a significant comment here, and it sure deepens the waters of our sinfulness, doesn't it? It really forces us back to realize how desperately we need the blood of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Sinful practices, as well as the passions and desires for them, are sinful. Well, then Paul adds covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, this is one interesting move that Paul makes. If you think of idolatry in the Old Testament, you're probably thinking about idols. You're thinking of praying towards or giving honor to gods and goddesses other than the one true God. You're thinking of the nations of the Canaanites and and those uh, around them, and surely that is idolatry. But Paul now says that covetousness, coveting things that are not yours, that God has not given you, is idolatry. Obsessing over, pursuing, or declaring that something on this earth is what I need, rather than finding satisfaction and contentment in what God has given us and in God himself, is idolatry. And to think about that this week, because I have to think that this is one of the strongest indictments on American culture here in the 21st century. There is just so much stuff all around us. I remember talking to someone who had uh, traveled overseas for a fair while, it was a number of months, and they came back to America and they said they could not walk in a Walmart without getting physically sick to their stomach because the amount of stuff and advertisement and appeal of material things is so uniquely strong and all around us in America. And so we need, to, we need to ask ourselves if we have adequately examined our hearts and reflected on this principle that coveting is a violation of the first commandment, an idolatry, something to put to death because we have died to our old man and what is earthly in us. This is a fascinating comment that I myself want to meditate further on. Well, then in verses 8 and 9, Paul gives us a second list. Wrath, anger, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Not lying to one another. And here again, we have a very familiar list of old man responses. Most of them having to do with our tongues in a number of ways. Anger, wrath, malice, and slander kind of all work together. They refer to our instinct to attack others who have hurt us or to punish those who have not treated us well or maybe even not treated us as we want to be treated. These are ways which Romans 12 says we take upon ourselves the right of God. Vengeance The treatment and the punishment of sin is the Lord's responsibility and the Lord's right. So we are not to to act with anger, wrath, malice, and slander. Now I realize um, I'm treating in about three seconds here what Pastor Curitan gave a whole sermon on uh, just a few weeks ago. So if you want to refer back to, well, what is righteous anger and how do we tell sinful anger from that, I'll refer you back to that sermon a few weeks ago rather than uh, retreading that ground here tonight. Obscene talk would refer, obscene literally means off-scene, talk that should not be made publicly. It refers to profanities, and it refers to filthy talk. In 
Ephesians chapter 5, Paul lists examples of obscene talk, including filthy talk, foolish talk, and crude joking. Those are the categories Paul gives us in Ephesians 5 for uh, obscene talk. And then, of course, we get lying. Jesus said in John 8, 44, that the devil is a liar and the father of lies. And if that's the case, no wonder lying and deceiving is so categorically of the earth or of the flesh and so contrary to our new man in Christ. One commentator concluded this. He said, whether it be deliberate untruth or the half-truth which conveys a wrong impression or the exaggeration which distorts the facts, all these savor of the old unregenerate nature rather than the new man. And all of these practices we are to put off if we are in Christ. So here we have, verses 5 through 9, a theologically grounded, practical exhortation. You have died with Christ. Now put off the practices that flow from the old man. But if we turn to verses 10 and 11, go back to our changing clothes analogy. I trust you never put off one set of clothes without putting another set of clothes on. And Paul says, so it is with our union with Christ. We are to put off the old man with its practices, but then Paul adds, and we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, in the next few weeks, in verses 12 through 17, we're going to see a lot of the practical examples of these new man practices. So tonight, we're really just getting into the the theological comment, if you will, on this new man that we've put on. It's a new man, which Paul says is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. To be renewed in knowledge implies a reset in what you know and what you believe to be true, and how you think. On the one hand, it's a reorientation of your thinking, from seeing the ways of earth as good and desirable, to knowledge from God based on his word that tells us that something different is good and true and right. So this knowledge comes from God's word. We're being renewed in this new frame of thinking based on the word of God. But on the other hand, this renewal also comes from knowing God himself in Christ Jesus. If you think about knowing God, knowledge of God that comes in Christ, this is not just factual. It is relational. I think about the way that Jesus says in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that you may know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. If you back up to Colossians 2.2, Paul prayed that the Colossians' hearts would be strengthened through the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So the knowledge that we are being renewed in is first and foremost knowing God through Christ Jesus. And then it is the reorientation of our thinking, the reframing of our thinking based on his word as we grow more and more in the knowledge of him Uh, in his word. So to know God, to know his son Jesus is at the heart of salvation and at the heart of this renewal in his image. In Christ, our recreation by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit is renewing us again in that image of God 
so that our wills, our moral capacity, and our lives again reflect the character of our Creator. You'll notice, and I seem to be doing this a lot lately, so I apologize for going grammatical on us week after week, but you'll notice that this is a process because Paul says in verse 10 that you are being renewed. That's a continual tense. In other words, even though the change from the old self to the new self has happened, the renewal is something that is continuing to happen. We are being renewed in this knowledge after the image of our Creator. It's a process that will not be finished until we are with God. And the Apostle John makes that clear and adds to our picture in 1 John 3, 2, when he tells us that when God appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We will be fully restored into His image and His likeness when we see Him as He is. But even though the hope of that final completion waits for that day, what does John add? Whoever hopes thus in Him purifies himself now as He is pure. The very hope of that final process being completed is another encouragement to us to put on the new practices that belong with this new man that we are in Jesus Christ. In verse 11, Paul makes a a specific application of this new man. When we are of the earth and our old man, communities of the earth find all sorts of identities to chop us up into. Race and gender and status. All of these things divide us and separate us. Greek versus Jew, barbarian versus Scythian, circumcised versus uncircumcised, slave versus free. But if in the church we have all put off our old man and we have all put on Christ, then those former distinctions don't apply anymore. Now it is our relationship in Christ who is all and in all that defines our fellowship together. We have all put on Christ. And as all in all, he is the one who unites us and defines us and how we treat one another. I liked particularly how one commentator phrased it. He said, Christ, as all in all, so dominates and defines all reality now that people and things find their significance entirely in how they relate to him, not in how they stand relative to each other based on former distinctives. And that is what ought to make the church such a unique community. Because all of the things that the world uses to sort us from each other don't apply anymore. We are all in Christ who is preeminent. And I sure got a visual picture of that and going straight from the Kenyan Christian Fellowship here tonight because there are many things the world would use to distinguish and divide us from one another. And yet we are one in Christ who is all in all and preeminent over all of them. Our old mans are put off. We are new in Christ. And we have this, we shared new man in him. Well, I want to step back for a minute. I want to consider what God's Word is calling us to do. We've been given this theological truth. In Christ, our old man has died. 
In Christ, we have been given a new man in him. But now we've given, been given this practical challenge. If that is true, then we must put off the old man's practices. We have work to do. We have battle to wage. So I want to ask as we close, what does this day-in, day-out battle look like? And I want to suggest three things that we ought to do in obedience to this exhortation to be putting off the practices of the old man. The first thing we ought to do is to examine ourselves more regularly and carefully. Examine ourselves more regularly and carefully. J.I. Packer was one of the foremost voices of conservative Christianity in the last century. Many of you know J.I. Packer. But you may not know that as a young believer, Packer was very confused theologically and was adrift, as he would put it, under the influence of leaders who told them that if he really wanted to be holy, then he just needed to let go and let God. He had to stop trying and get to a point where he just let the Holy Spirit take him over. Pecker writes that he was in knots, trying to figure out what exactly this meant, to not try, not do anything, let go, and let God. But he was in the midst of these knots when the group that he was part of was given an old clergyman's library. And going into the old clergyman's library, he was confronted with a complete set of the works of John Owen. And picking one of the books out at random, the Lord set him in Owen's little treatise, The Mortification of Sin. Packer writes, And so I was saved. <laughs> here, is, here is Owen, and this is what Packer writes about Owen's mortification of sin. He said, The need for self-scrutiny is insufficiently emphasized today. It is supremely ironic that in an era in which professional therapists make so much of hidden and unrealized motives, Christians should so regularly decline to suspect that there would be any inappropriate motive lying in their hearts or any self-deception occurring in their lives. Owen insists that we must watch and examine ourselves by Scripture in order to know what habits of our hearts need to be mortified. And so the first thing we must do is to keep a careful watch on ourselves, to examine ourselves for any behaviors or desires that are earthly and not of Christ. For that's exhortation number one. Exhortation number two is to kill what we find that is of the earth. To mortify sin, as Owen would put it. Mortify is just a fancy word to put to death. Owen begins by reminding us that though the Holy Spirit alone is the cause and source of any growth and holiness, the Holy Spirit always accomplishes his work in such a way that still makes it the fruit of our obedience. See what Owen says? Growth and holiness is always and only the work of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit always accomplishes it in such a way that still makes it a fruit of our obedience and duty to mortify sin. It is all the Spirit's work, and yet the Spirit has chosen to use our hatred of sin, our longing for righteousness, and our effort to kill sin as the means by which he works it out in our lives. And so Owen so deftly summarizes Scripture's truth that it's not our effort that sanctifies us, and yet we are to pour out effort in our sanctification. 
Owen gives us a series of rules for mortifying sin. And I can't summarize all of Owen's work for you tonight, but I'd like to just read you Owen's rules or guidelines for mortifying sin. And perhaps you might just think about these and what, how it compares to our uh, actions as a Christian. Here they are. You will never mortify sin unless you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You will never mortify sin without sincerity and diligence in your effort. True hatred of sin as sin and a sense of the love of Christ and the cross lie at the bottom of all true mortification of sin. Get a clear sense of the guilt of your sin, the danger of your sin, and the evil of your sin before you. Cultivate a vehement desire for deliverance. Avoid the occasions for sin. Vigorously oppose the first hints of sin. Don't let the first hints grow or hang around or grow stronger by consideration. Think often of your sinfulness and how easy it is for you to be lured into sin. Do not soften your conscience or find peace in the face of your sin until that peace is spoken by God in Jesus Christ in his work on the cross. And finally, consider the fullness and the greatness of Christ compared to your need and consider the mercy and faithfulness of Christ to meet your need when you come to him. Isn't that a great list of rules and guidelines for mortifying sin? What a great battle plan. I think the thought that struck me as I read this list and reviewed it this week was this. I take a fairly little amount of time to think about my sin and a fairly little amount of time in quickly asking for forgiveness for my sin. And so the result is that often my weapons to kill sin are fairly small. And may we have the same longing to mortify sin that filled John Owen. So examine ourselves, mortify sin. Finally, dig deeper in your knowledge of Christ. Dane Ortland, in his book Deeper, argues that one common reason we fail to leave sin behind is because we have a very small view of Jesus. Ortland asks it this way, Have you reduced the Lord Jesus to a safe, containable, predictable Savior who pitches in and helps your otherwise smoothly running life? Have you treated what is spiritually nuclear as a double-A battery to keep your life running? Might one reason we stall out in our growth in Christ be that we have unwittingly domesticated the expansive rule and authority of Jesus Christ over all things? Might we be lacking a true knowledge of Christ, an appropriate fear of, wonder at, trembling before the Lord Jesus, the real Jesus, who will one day silence the raging of the nations with a moment's whisper? If we have domesticated Jesus, a small view of Jesus, an insufficient knowledge of Jesus, is it any wonder that we lack in desire, zeal, and ability to kill sin and find strength and hope in our Savior? There's no doubt that this takes effort. This is a serious call. Kill sin. Put to death what is earthly in you. Pursue Christ and be renewed in him. 
But I'll end with this. Commentator Mark Johnson said, Yes, it may take some drastic action for you to hate sin and kill it, but it is nothing compared to the drastic action that Christ took to put your sin to death. He put himself to death to deal with the scourge of our sin. And the lengths we go to kill sin is nothing less than Christ's own attitude working out in our own lives, though far less than what he went to himself. And so as we come to the table tonight and come to meditate on in faith the death of our Savior, may our eyes go there. Look at Christ. Look at the cross. Look at his blood shed and his body broken that he might break the power of sin and death over his people. And now that he has united me to himself, how much more should I who have died to sin put to death the practices that remain that I might be renewed more and more into the image of my Savior? Let's pray. Father, oh, may we hate sin. Father, may we run to Christ. Father, may we examine ourselves and put to death what is earthly in us. May we eagerly run after Christ that we might be renewed more and more after his image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.